Amen. Lord, we, we thank you for that most holy of nights. And we thank you, Lord, that you didn't just come as a baby, but Lord, that you lived a sinless, perfect life and then went to the cross and paid the price that we could not pay. And then as we will see this morning, that on the third day you rose from the dead, triumphing over sin and death. Lord, we pray this morning as we go to your word that you would be our teacher. Give each one of us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us this morning. Lord, we're desperate for you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. If you don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. We'll, We'll get you one because you will need one. And if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the entire New Testament. I want to encourage you to pray about coming on Wednesday nights. We're going through Deuteronomy. We'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 11, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Now this morning, I, you know, I, I just confess to you as your pastor, sometimes I prepare a, a study, and I think I'm going to teach a lot more verses than, like last week we looked at 47 verses. This morning we're going to look at 8. All right? And that's the great thing about teaching verse by verse. We can just pick up where we leave off next week. But I want to catch you up briefly. 1 Corinthians is, is a letter written by Paul. And Paul's writing this letter to a church in Corinth that he had established five years earlier. And he's addressing them in areas of extreme importance. Areas he had found out where they, were, they as a church were being more conformed to the world than they were having an impact on it. They were divided within the body. They'd gotten caught up in the vain philosophies of men and worldly wisdom and began to pursue the things of the world. The Bible says the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Paul would later tell them that he determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ him crucified and risen from the dead. He didn't care about the man-made knowledge. He didn't care about all the things that the world pursues. And in Corinth, they were really caught up in seeing how intellectual they could be. Now, I want to make it clear, it doesn't mean we shouldn't study doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, desire to have knowledge, but you know what? We should desire God more than knowledge, amen? And you know what? All knowledge, He is omniscience, He is all-knowing. You want knowledge, know God, and you'll have true knowledge of what, really, what you really need to know. He talked to them about real wisdom is impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. I don't care how many degrees you have after your name, if you don't have the Holy Spirit living within you, you have no wisdom. You can have worldly knowledge, but you can have no wisdom apart from the Holy Spirit. He taught them that the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us and leads us and convicts us. He told them that the wisdom of the world, again, is foolishness compared to God. He then talked to them about how they needed to be good stewards of the Word. How they needed to be faithful with the Word that God had given them to give it to others, to minister to other people. Again, an exhortation for you and I today. Paul's walk was so strong that he even told them to imitate me. Words I don't know that I could use. But Paul said, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He then warned them about them suing one another. He talked to them about sexual immorality that became prevalent in the church. Why did it become prevalent? Because all the people around them were involved in sexual immorality. There was idol worship, was real prevalent in Corinth. So they started mimicking the world around them. And there's nothing new under the sun, amen? It's happening in the church today where we legitimize sexual immorality because you say, well, the world's doing it. Well, you know, it's 2005 almost, and certainly we don't hold to the Bible, you know, 2,000 years ago. And sadly, as the Word of God is getting watered down, so too is the way that Christians are living their lives. God's called us to be holy, amen, and set apart unto Him. We're not sinless, but we do sin less. And encourage them to stay away from sexual immorality that have become prevalent within the church. He also talked to them about the principles of marriage. And again, something under attack in the world we live in today. Trying to, you know, right now it's before the Supreme Court of of California trying again to get homosexual marriage okayed in our country. Here's the reality. They can okay whatever they want. It's not okay with God. Amen? God God created marriage, not man. And God's the one who designed it. And God's the one who who defines it. And he writes this letter to them again about marriage because they were considering just getting divorced from each other once they became Christians so they could serve God full time, thinking it was more holy to be single. And God told them, no, if you're married, you be faithful in marriage. And if you're single, you be faithful in being single. Single people are undistracted by, by marriage, but those who are married need to be faithful. Then he talked to them about Christian liberty, how there were a lot of Christians who were going around using their liberty, not caring about whether or not they stumbled somebody else. 
You know, as Christians, we do have freedom in Christ, but we are to be careful not to stumble others in our walk. The example that he used was they were eating meat sacrificed to idols. There were new believers in the church who had come out of idol worship, and they were stumbled, going, why are you eating that meat? That stuff was sacrificed to an idol. The stronger or more mature Christian would have said, well, you know, this is just meat. The idol's not real anyway. It's a block of wood. It doesn't make any difference, so I can eat this, and it's cheaper, right? And then he told them, don't do that if you're going to stumble your brother. Don't stumble your brother for a meal. Over the, don't stumble the very one who Christ died for. He then talked to them about divine order in the church, that we are to be submitted to God in the body of Christ, and that in the home, and this is a word that, that, that is not popular today, but God has called wives to submit to their husbands. Now that doesn't mean, guys, you walk around with an iron fist saying, sit down and shut up and submit, woman. I have never seen that work, by the way. Not real effective. And it's not God's plan either. God's design is that you serve your wife in such a way and you love her and you lay down your life for her and you lead her by example, by loving her, by washing her feet, by serving her, by ministering to her, by being a man who prays and seeks God's face. And you know what? Most women I talk to in marriage counseling will say, you know, when my husband does that, it's very easy for me to be submitted to him as he is submitted to the Lord. Because ultimately, that's who we're submitting to is God. He also talked about it in the church. That there is godly def, uh, order in the body of Christ. And then in chapters 12 through 14, we looked at the spiritual gifts. We talked about how we are all the body of Christ. That the Lord saved you for a reason. He didn't save you to be a pew potato, right? He didn't save you to be the biggest, fattest, best fed sheep in town who do nothing for the kingdom of God. The Dead Sea is dead because it has an inlet and no outlet. God saved you to use you for His glory. And so we are all the body of Christ. We all have individual gifts. And that's why it's so important that we gather together. Because you have gifts that I don't, and I have gifts that you don't. And God has called us to come together to minister to each other. When you're not here, the body's hurting. When you're not here, I miss out. When I'm not here, you miss out. God's called us to come together and to use the gifts that God has given us. While we're indwelt by the same Spirit, we all have differing gifts. And if we're not all here then the body suffers. He then told them in chapter 13 what heart to have, how to use those gifts from a heart of agape. We talked about this. I encourage you to get the tape on chapter 13. It just talks about love, what the real definition of love is. Love is not heat, right? A lot of people are in heat. When they think they're in love, they're in heat, all right? I want to, oh, well, yeah, I love her. I haven't met her yet. I don't know her name, but I'm in love. No, you're not. You're in heat, dude. Slow down, all right? And the reality is a lot of people define love, and there's a lot of words, you know, we, we use love in a lot of contexts in, in our language. I love, you know, tacos, I love the 49ers, I love my wife, I love God. Those would better be a little different, amen? And we saw that there's phileo, Aaron, and agape, and again, I don't have time to go into it, but one is a selfish love, one is a friendship love, and one is a selfless love. And that's the kind of love we are to have for one another, and that's the kind of love we're to use, love that can only come from the Holy Spirit, that's why we are to marry someone who loves God like we do, because if you don't, you will have a supernatural agape love for them, and they will be unable to return that, because that love is only possible when given by the Holy Spirit. So the Corinthian church, caught up in the philosophies of men, they're suing each other, they're caught up in sexual immorality, they don't have a true understanding of biblical marriage, they were abusing their freedom in Christ, they were, divining, they were uh, denying God's divine order. They were showing Aaron or selfish love rather than agape love. They had, again, were using the gifts in a way that not, did not honor and glorify God. They were so self-centered. Now we could all say, man, those guys are just blowing it, right? But you know what? Don't you see yourself in some of that? I know I do. But we get caught up in ourselves sometimes, and we, we're so worried about our walk or our own, our own desires or our own plans that we miss out on God's ultimate plan, how we as a body of Christ are to function together. We should be edifying the body. We should be encouraging one another. And again, while other issues that Paul addressed were very significant, I believe the chapter we're going to look at this morning is going to tell us why all these other things were happening. And it's a warning to us as the body of Christ that if we don't heed the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, We'll fall into the same traps, and we'll be, we'll be involved in the sexual immorality, as much of the church is today. We'll be chasing the worldly philosophies. We'll be suing each other. We won't understand the Word of God. We'll abuse our freedom in Christ. We'll, we'll uh, deny God's divine order. 
And the root of the problem, again, I believe will be found in this morning's text. And you know what it is? It's the denial of the essentials of the gospel. You know, you might think, well, Pastor Dave, duh, everybody believes the gospel. Anybody picked up the Sentinel religious section lately or looked on the page on religion? And even those calling themselves Christian churches use buzzwords like we're accepting or we're, what basically means we just, you know, we're not into talking about sin. We're not into talking about our need for a savior. You know, hey, we're just a big, you know, it's all kumbaya. Everybody get around in a circle and sing songs together because it's all good. And it doesn't matter how we live our lives, you know, because as long as we just have a good feeling about things. Well, that's weak. Amen. That's not the gospel. That sounds, you know, real fluffy and airy and light and wonderful and wow, you're so accepting. But the reality is that it's a lie. Because God has a greater plan for us than that. And when we start denying our sin, we start denying our need for a Savior, we start denying the resurrection, then we don't know the God of the Bible anymore. And before you know it, we're just a big religious country club. Again, put the horns on the wall, call it the Elks Club and be done with it. Because it's not church anymore, amen? We've got to get back to the gospel, to the truth of God's word. And so this is Paul's heart when we get to 1 Corinthians 15. He starts to write to them and say to them, Guys, let me get you back to reality because people were walking around and teaching that they didn't believe in the resurrection anymore. We'll see it next time. We get to verse 12. They were walking around saying, oh, we don't believe in the resurrection. Oh, it's not really true. Well, guess what? If the resurrection's not true, then let's just all get in our cars and go home right now. Amen? Because apart from the resurrection, we are hopeless. But praise God, as we'll see this morning, Jesus Christ is alive. Amen? He is a risen and a living Savior. Not just the baby in a manger, but he is the one who triumphed over sin and death. And he has risen from the dead. If you do not believe the complete gospel, the word of God falls apart. So this morning... We're going to look at the fact, again, that while they were denying the resurrection, he wanted to get them back to the truth, because apart from the resurrection, they would be a disaster, a mess. They would never get their eyes back on God. So the first eight verses this morning, Paul's going to combat the false heretical teaching that there had been no resurrection by clearly presenting the whole gospel. First, we're going to see the importance of the gospel, then the message of the gospel, and then finally the evidence that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. So again, let's begin in verse 1, looking at the importance of the gospel. As he's going to proclaim the truth, refute all the false teaching that was going on in the church. And again, it was rampant because they they began to even believe there was no resurrection. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand. The word declare is to to make known, to give understanding. So he's saying to this group that had gotten their eyes off of God, that were caught up in all the things of the world, and he says, I declare to you, I want to make something known to you. I want to bring understanding to you about something that's very important, and the reason the church is suffering, the reason chapters 1 through 14 had to be addressed is because of these coming verses. And he says, I declare to you the gospel. Gospel means what? Good news. Now, in those days, it could be any type of good news. If you brought good news, it was called the gospel, bringing good news. You could bring the news of a a baby being born or any kind of good news was the gospel. Well, we know today that it now has one meaning. When you say the gospel, it means the greatest news that has ever been delivered to mankind, that Jesus Christ is God. And then he came and he suffered and died that we might have eternal life. It's, been, it's become synonymous with that truth. Now, Paul preached the gospel message. He proclaimed the truth of salvation. And the first step to salvation is that it must first be proclaimed. He says, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. It says in Romans 10, And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Then it later says, a few verses later, it says, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So the first thing that must happen with the gospel is somebody must step up and share the truth. Amen? Now, I've said it, and I've heard you guys say it. We'll say it about people that we know. We'll say, man, that person needs Jesus. You ever said that before? 
I'm the only one who's ever thought that? You meet somebody and go, dude, that guy just needs the Lord, right? Man, she's a mess. She needs Jesus. Now, instead of us saying that, why don't we tell them what they need, amen? Instead of saying, man, that guy needs the Lord. Well, did you tell him? Well, no. Then how's he going to hear? How blessed are the feet of those who spread the gospel. The first thing that must happen in the process of salvation, somebody must share the truth. Aren't you glad somebody shared the truth with you? Amen? God brought somebody divinely into your life who opened up their mouth and shared with you the love of God. Because we cannot have faith unless we first hear the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Somebody must share the truth with us. We must see the emptiness and the bitterness, the anger or the arrogance of people's lives, of a family member, a co-worker, a neighbor, parents of your children's friends, their classmates, your classmates. We might rightly diagnose the problem. They need Jesus, but we need to take time to offer up the cure. Imagine that person has cancer and you have the antidote in your pocket. How selfish is that? Boy, that person's dying of cancer. That's just, that's rough. If you've got the antidote to the death serum, right, in your pocket, how can we not share with people the love of God? The first step in the process of salvation is us opening up our mouths and sharing the truth of the gospel with a world that desperately needs it. Do people in Santa Cruz need to hear the gospel? Amen? They need to hear it. And we are the ones who are born again. They're not going to hear it from the world. They're going to hear lies from the world. They need to hear the truth from us. And praise God that he's given us the gift. What an amazing thing. You know, God could open up the sky and just explain the gospel like this and have us all hear it, right? Couldn't God do that? But he chooses to use you and me, and that's a privilege. And so the first thing that must happen is we, like Paul, must proclaim the truth. Not enough to see the need and walk away May we not hide our light under a bushel, fail to share the greatest news with those who so desperately need it. Then it says there, which I preach to you, which you also received. It's not enough to hear the truth of the gospel, it must be received. The gospel must be embraced and received. We cannot just hear it, we must do something about it. It's not enough to have heard the gospel or just believe that it's true. It must be received into each heart individually. You've heard me say this before. Salvation is offered universally and it must be accepted individually. For God so loved the the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him. So God loves the world. It is his desire that none should perish, no, not one. So he offers salvation universally, but it must be accepted individually. God will not force anybody to know him. He reaches out to all of us, and we make a choice to accept or reject the gift of salvation. It's offered universally. It must be accepted individually. He said, I preached it to you, and you received it. You received the gospel. Paul would later write to the church in Thessalonica, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which also works effectively in you who believe. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is confession unto salvation. It's not enough just to hear with our ears. We must believe it and receive it in our hearts. So, salvation must be proclaimed by believers. The truth of the gospel must be proclaimed by those who know it. And then it must be received by those who hear it. They can reject it or they can receive it. Those are the two options. You know, there are no doubt there are some people here this morning. And maybe you came because it's the day after Christmas. Because somebody invited you and you felt obligated. We're glad you're here. We hope you feel welcome. But I want you to know you're here by divine appointment. And God knew you were going to be here. And he wants you to know that he loves you so very much that he'd rather die than live without you. And you're going to see that in the next few verses. And before you walk out of here, every one of us will make a decision, if we haven't already, about where we're going to be with Jesus Christ. What are you going to do about Jesus? I want you to think about that as we go through the next few verses. So not only did he receive, but he says, which also you received and in which you stand, by which the church was founded, in which we all have hope, which was the foundation for all of our beliefs. 
If we truly believe God's word and have received the good news of the gospel, then we can stand on the assurance of the word of God of our salvation. Can I tell you right now that I know that I know that I know that I'm going to heaven? How many of you know you're going to heaven? Raise your hand. Aren't you glad it's not a hope so? Aren't you glad you're not going to one of these churches where they tell you, well, how were you today? What did you do? Well, how are you doing? What, you know? Can you imagine? Right? You know, oh, I'm going to not, yeah, wait, not, well, man, that'd be rough. Man, I don't think I'd ever go outside again. Can you imagine, you know, if you sin, then you're going, oh, you get, man. And I meet people like that. I'm like, are you going to heaven? Well, I sure hope so. Whoa. Haven't met my Savior. Amen? If you believe in your heart and confess your mouth, you will be saved. You're saved. You're born again. He adopts you into his family, and you can never be taken away or disowned from him. No one will ever snatch you out of his hand. Man, there's a joy in that. There's a peace in that. And we can stand on that sure foundation that we know that we're going to heaven, not because of our good works, but because of his great grace. Amen? He's a faithful God. Now look at verse 2. So in which you stand, but by which also you are saved. The word there in saved in the Greek is delivered, protected, healed, preserved, or made whole. Apart from the gospel, we were in bondage. And saving faith delivered us. Apart from the gospel, we were unprotected from the enemy. Saving faith protects us. Apart from the gospel, we were spiritually sick. But by his stripes, we were healed. We were empty apart from the gospel, had that God-shaped vacuum, but in Him we have been made whole. You know, everybody is born to have a relationship with God, and we choose to accept or reject His truth, His love, His grace, His mercy. There's a God-shaped vacuum that you can fill up with everything else the world has to offer, and you will never have peace. You can put sex in there, drugs in there, alcohol in there, money in there, success in there, hobbies in there, whatever you want, and your flesh will never be satisfied because... It was created for God alone. And there's a God-shaped vacuum in every man's heart. And it needs to be filled with Him or we will not have peace. And we've been saved. By which also you were saved through the gospel of truth. It says there, if you hold fast to that word which I preach to you. Now this is interesting. People struggle with this. They're saying, so I'm saved if I hold fast to the word. Let me tell you this. True belief produces salvation and a salvation that holds fast to the word over time in the midst of adversity and doesn't heed false teaching. Now I'm not going to go into the whole thing because we don't have time for it right now, but some people say, well, Pastor Dave, if somebody proclaims to walk with God and then they walk away, do they lose their salvation? Here's what I would tell you. If somebody walks away, they were never saved. Because if you truly know God, you won't walk away. Now, May you backslide. May you struggle at times. Yes, but conviction and the Holy Spirit will bring you back into right fellowship with God. Amen? That's the, re- the reality of that is that we can know that if we've truly been born again, He's our Father. He loves us. And He will bring us back. He will draw us near to Him yet again. True salvation and faith and belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ produces lives that change dramatically. If you prayed a prayer and your life hasn't changed, you have not been born again. Because you can't give your life to Jesus Christ and just keep living the same old life. Is that true or not? Amen? You know, it's not one of those things, so what did you do this weekend? Well, I, went, I went water skiing, and I went to a ball game, and oh yeah, got saved on Sunday, and then I... That doesn't happen. When you're born again, everything changes. The way you look at life changes. You, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you're a new creation in Christ. And as a new creation in Christ, everything's different. And it should be dramatic. It should be radical. People ought to say, what happened to you, dude? That's a good thing, by the way. When your unsafe friends are like, dude, what's up with you, man? What, what happened to you? I met Jesus. Oh, whoa, right? That's how they respond. But that's okay. Because you know what? It's the greatest thing in the world to understand why you've been created and to know the Savior in an intimate and a personal way. Lives have been transformed that know Christ and they bear fruit. The parable of the sower, just for a moment here. Have you all heard that parable? The seed is the word of God and when the seed's thrown out, some of it falls on hard ground. That's if somebody just doesn't receive it whatsoever. The birds come and pluck it away and it bears nothing. Nothing happens to it. Some of the seed falls in shallow soil. That's a shallow heart. They initially receive it, but takes no root, and eventually it just fades away. Somebody comes and says, yeah, I want to give my life to God. I want to serve Him. You know, and that, you know I want to try God. I tried yoga, and I, you know, I tried LSD, you know, I tried God for a while, right? 
And, you know, and it, and it doesn't really take root, and there's no depth to their understanding, and it just blows away. Then the third kind is it's planted in good soil, but then it gets choked off among the thorns. And those are the cares of the world. And these are people who may walk with God for a while, have the appearance of being a Christian, but get caught up so consumed with the things going on around them that eventually they're choked off by the world and die. Then there's a fourth kind of soil, and that's good soil. And the seed falls into it, and it grows, and it bears much fruit. Some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. If you've been born again, you'll bear fruit in your life. Your life will have an impact on the world around you. You will be different. Christianity is, we're not to be undercover Christians, amen? You're not to go to work every day and uh, got through another day and nobody else found out I'm saved, amen? That's not good. We should be salt and light. True salvation is not just believing for a moment, a month, or for a year. True salvation produces a transformed life that endures to the end, amen? Now again, some people say, well, Pastor Dave, you're teaching you can lose your salvation. No, I'm not. I'm telling you that if you've been saved, you will endure. Again, not that you'll be perfect, because none of us are apart from Christ. But when you sin, your heart will be grieved, and you'll be gripped. It says there, unless you believed in vain. She'll hold fast to the word, unless you believed in vain. Unless you begin to believe in another gospel, or believe that, or you don't hold fast to the word, or in this case, begin to reject the resurrection, those are beliefs that cannot save you. Only belief and true faith that holds fast to the gospel producing a radically transformed and fruitful life is belief or saving faith that results in salvation. Anything less than that is not the gospel. And so he's telling them the importance of the gospel, the importance of the gospel, the process of the gospel. You share it. They, then once you hear it, those who are in the hearing, you receive it. Then once you receive it, you stand in it, and then you've been saved by it, and now you, and you live in it until the end. That's salvation. Now, what does it mean? What is the gospel? You, Pastor Dave, you're using the word gospel. Tell me what the gospel is. Well, he does that. Look at verses 3 and 4. We're going to look at the message of the gospel. What exactly is the gospel? For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. So the first thing that he lets them know is Paul didn't make this up. This is not Paul's opinion. This is not Paul's idea. This is the gospel. The gospel which Paul had received from the Lord. In Galatians it says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for neither I received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. How did Paul get saved? He was on the road to where? Damascus. And he got knocked off his high horse, right? He was going in to, to persecute and potentially even kill Christians. He gets knocked off his high horse. Jesus appears to him and he gets saved. And the revelation of the gospel was given directly to him by the Lord. And he says, so this is not my opinion, this is not what I think, this is the word of God delivered directly to me, and now I'm giving it directly to you. The preacher doesn't make the gospel. You know what, if some guy's coming up with some new thing, run away. Can I tell you right now that all I'm doing is repeating to you what God has shown to me through his word. That's why it's so important that you have your Bible open in your lap to make sure it's not my opinion, but it's the word of God. You listen to someone on the radio, have, your, have the Bible. Make sure it's the Word of God, not the opinion of men. The opinions of men are worthless. It's the Word of God that transforms lives. The gospel is not based on religious opinions, platitudes, or fairy tales, but is a real historical fact. Not based on views but, or opinions, but based on facts. So what is the gospel? He says, I deliver to you first that which I also received. So here it goes. That Christ died. Now, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, is the center of the gospel. And his death is foolishness to the world, but it, to us who believe it is the power of God. Now, how did Jesus die? We're going to talk about how did Jesus die and why did Jesus die? How did Jesus die? What happened to him? He was what? He was crucified. Now, We've talked about this so much that often we just glance over it. We're not going to do that this morning. I want to talk to you about the crucifixion. Because what is crucifixion? 
The Roman government executed him using this most cruel and excruciating form of punishment that has ever been devised. Even though the Romans didn't invent it, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment designed to produce a slow death with the maximum amount of pain and suffering. They got together and thought, how can we make people suffer for the, the utmost? Here's an idea. Here's what we can do to them to make them suffer and endure it the longest until they die. That's crucifixion. What exactly is it like to be crucified? When the New Testament was first written, they didn't really need an explanation because it was going on around them. But you and I do. And I want to take a moment to explain it to us. The first thing that happened to those who were crucified is they were taken out and they were scourged. They take the victim and they wrap the feet and the hands around a pole so that they are totally defenseless. They cannot put their hands up, their feet up, they cannot move. They take a cat of nine tails. And on the cat of nine tails is bone and metal and glass. And they take it and they bring it back. And when they hit the body, it reaches in and grabs on the chest, on the back, sometimes even on the face. Often eyeballs came out, hit them in the eye. And when they pulled it back, whatever it was holding on to would be ripped away. Ripped away completely. And so after just a few lashes, blood was running. After eight or nine, the internal organs could be clearly seen. And they did this 39 times. Most people died from scourging. That's how the crucifixion started, with scourging. Now after the scourging took place, the victim would then have to pick up the cross and carry it. And now imagine your body is just torn up. You're on the verge of death already, and you're carrying a cross. And as you're carrying it, this was an act of humiliation as well, because it was so hard to carry. They would often fall over, as we know our Savior did. And then they would mock those who were being crucified. They would spit at them. The soldiers would often strike, them, strike blows in their face. And this is what happened to our Savior. The victim was thrown to the ground in this weakened state and was forced to pick up his cross and carry it. Once he arrived at his destination, he was then nailed to the cross. Nails were driven through his wrist or through the palms of his hands. And they specifically nailed them there because it went through a, uh, the large median nerve, which then sent jolting pain through the arms, a pain that did not subside. And they did that so that the pain would be at the utmost. And so, now why am I telling you all this? Pastor Dave, why do I need to hear this? I want you to understand how much Jesus loves you. I want you to understand the price that was paid for you and the price that you and I should have paid. The painful wounds on the back would then scrape against the rough wood as the cross was brought up and then dropped into the ground. And as it dropped, the weight of the entire body fell upon the cross. And this body that was open up and bloodied was then scraping against it. And then what would happen is the person would collapse forward. And with every breath, because they were hanging there, they had to pull themselves up to breathe. And every time they pulled themselves up, it brought excruciating pain to their entire body. They had to pull on their wrist where it was going through the very nerves that were hurting their arms and causing this pain. And if they didn't bring themselves up, they would suffocate. This is crucifixion. This is what happened to our Savior. Each breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to a sooner death. Death from crucifixion came from many sources. Acute shock from blood loss, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, dehydration, stress-and-dressed heart attack, congestive heart failure leading to the rupture of the heart itself. And if the victim did not die quickly enough, they would then come and break the, the victim's legs, so then they could not breathe anymore, and then they would suffocate and collapse on their own chest. How bad was crucifixion? We get the English word excruciating from the word out of the cross. That's what our Savior went through. Now, some of you are saying, I didn't need to hear that. No, yes, you did. Because I think that too often we see a gold cross hanging around somebody's neck, which is wonderful. But we forget about all that our Savior did that you and I might have eternal life. We read Christ died and we just move on. No, Christ died. And he died for you. And he's willing to suffer in your place. As we know, Jesus' legs were not broken to fulfill prophecy that nothing would ha that not a, a bone of his body would be broken. So then a spear was run through his side to make sure he was dead, and water and blood poured out of his side. We know how Jesus died, but why did he die? Look what it says there. Christ died for our what? Sins. 
If you're here this morning and you don't know it, you're a sinner. Amen? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and all means all, and you're part of all. Amen? I meet people that tell me they're not sinners sometimes. I'm baffled. Dude, let me just hang out with you for five minutes. I'll, I'll know that's not true. The reality, we're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If God allowed one sin in heaven, he'd have earth part two. One sin in the Garden of Eden brought the, all the destruction that's in the world today. There can be no sin in heaven. We're all sinners. We've got a problem. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. God can't have sin in heaven. How can I go? That's why Christ died. He died for our sins. What does it mean that he died for our sins? How does his death do anything for my sin? You know, many noble men and women have died horrible deaths. How does the death of Jesus do anything for our sin? Haven't other people been martyred? Weren't other people crucified? Why, why only Jesus can save us? You might get that question. If you haven't got it before, you will. And you know what you tell people? Because only Jesus Christ was sinless. Only Jesus Christ is God. Amen? And only Jesus Christ could pay the price for our sin. A sinful man could not pay for my sins. He needs to pay for his own. At some point before he died, before the veil was torn in two, before he cried out, it is finished, an awesome spiritual transaction took place, and the Father laid upon Jesus all the guilt and wrath that our sin deserved, and he bore it himself perfectly, totally satisfying the wrath of God for us. Our sin comes with a price. It must be paid, and Jesus paid it. Praise God, amen? He paid it. He took all of my sin, all of your sin, upon himself and suffered and died so that you and I would not have to. As horrible as the physical suffering of Jesus was, I believe this spiritual separation from the Father was by far the worst part of Jesus on the cross. Remember Jesus cried out. What did he say? My God, my God, why hast thou what? Forsaken me. Jesus experienced separation from the Father. He's fully God, and he experienced separation from the Father because of sin. Our sin. Now, Jesus did not become a sinner. That's impossible. But he did take the price of our sin upon himself. And he proved that he did not become a sinner because he rose from the dead, as we will see, because the grave cannot hold him because he was sinless. The grave is the result of sin and death. It's not the result of holiness. And God is holy. And that's why the grave could not hold him. Again, Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God for that moment, was judged and was taken, all this wrath of God was placed upon him. For our sins, our sins were responsible for Jesus' death. Don't blame Jesus' death on the Jews or the Romans or anybody else. If you want to blame somebody for the death of Christ, look in the mirror. Amen? That was weak. Amen? You look in the mirror and you see the person who's responsible for Jesus going to the cross. Now certainly the Romans washed their hands, you know, Caesar, you know, Pontius Pilate washed his hands of him and allowed him to go and he's going to answer for that. But the reality is it's because of our sin that Jesus went. You know what, if we hadn't sinned, he would have just smoked those Roman soldiers, right? Try to take, I'm God, your toads, right? He could have done that. He's God. He freely went. You know, everybody else no doubt was fighting when they're, you know, trying to get their arm. You know, if someone's trying to nail my arm, I'm going down swinging. How about you, right? I'm kicking, I'm biting, I got no problem at this point, right? I'm going for it. You know what? I know for a fact that our Lord did this. Amen? He freely laid down his life. And it was not nails that held him to the cross, it was his love for us. He loves us so much that he was willing to take all of that pain for our sins. He died to pay the price that you and I could not pay. And I share these details again, not to make you have pity for Jesus. He doesn't need our pity. But I want you to understand just how much he loves us. That sin comes at a heavy price. And as brutal as the scene was, it was all part of God's plan, even before the foundation of the world. It says in Revelation that Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Now next it says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now the Scriptures would be a reference to what? The Old Testament. They didn't have the completed Bible yet. So he died according to the Scriptures. Did you know there's over 200 Old Testament prophecies that all point to Christ and he fulfilled them all? That's because he's God, amen? 
How many of you decided where you were going to be born? You can't. You're not God. Amen? But he knew, it says where he would be born, how he would live, how he would die. And praise God, because that's the God we serve. The fulfillment of all prophecy. Isaiah speaks of his death, of his crucifixion. It says, he is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow is acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has, be, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. That was written 600 years before Jesus was crucified and hundreds of years before crucifixion existed. How is that possible? Because God wrote it. In Psalm 22, known as the, the crucifixion psalm, verse 1 says, my, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Again, written hundreds of years before Jesus went to the cross. In verse 7, it says, All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out their lip. They shake their heads saying, He trusted the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him. He, he delights in him. Let him deliver him himself. In verse 16, it says, They pierce my hand and feet. I count all my bones. They look at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. All of that was written hundreds of years before Jesus went to the cross and when crucifixion did not yet exist. How is that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? And this is all pointing to what Jesus was going to do out of his love for you and his love for me. Are you ever just blown away by God's love for you? Can I tell you, I just drive my car sometimes and just start weeping, thinking, man, I don't deserve this. God, you love me so much that that you took my place. What a great and awesome God. We also see in several places clear pictures of the cross. When Abraham took his son, his only son Isaac, it was on the third day they went up the mountain. That's not by chance. Isaac carrying the wood on his back, just like Jesus would later carry the cross. Isaac then being, being not a, a small child, but probably a, t- a teenager or in his 20s, and his father's 120 years old. You think he could have handled his dad at that point? But he didn't. Isaac laid down on the altar and willingly was going to allow his dad to sacrifice him. And as, he, as Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, as God had told him to, it says in the text that the Lord provided himself a sacrifice. The Lord pres- provided himself a sacrifice. And there was a ram caught in the thicket and they killed a lamb. Who's that a picture of? It's Jesus, written thousands of years before he came to earth in the picture of Abraham and Isaac. I love that story. In Numbers 21, when the people were murmuring against God, you guys remember this, you've been coming to, on Wednesday nights, and the Lord told, and remember what happened, the Lord brought fiery serpents, God brought fiery serpents into the camp, because they were murmuring against God and complaining against God and saying they didn't need God, and they began to be bit by these serpents, and everybody who was bit, they all started to die. And as people were dying all around them, the people who had been bit and turned to Moses and said, hey, help us, go to the Lord, we need help. They were mocking God, now they were crying out to God. And as they cried out to God, God told Moses to make a brass serpent and to put the brass serpent on a pole and to hold the pole up and everybody who looked up at the serpent would be healed. Now the serpent in the Bible is a picture of Satan or sin in the garden, right? Now doesn't it seem odd that the very sin that bit them was the very thing that it was held up on the pole? Brass or bronze in the Bible is always a picture of judgment. If you've been coming on Wednesday nights, you know that. But why would you look to sin, why would you look to a serpent to have your, to be healed? Because the Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. It's a picture of Jesus on the cross becoming sin for us. And I want you to notice that only those who looked up were healed. If you're here this morning, you've been bit by the serpent of sin we all have. And only those of us who look up to the cross and accept Jesus Christ, we'll be healed from our sin. Amen? It's only through the blood of the cross. It's the only way that we can be saved. God provided Himself a sacrifice according to the Scriptures. It's all over the Bible. Later, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, He gave us the example of the serpent. And Nicodemus said, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And He said, what did He tell him? He had to be born again. And then later he told him, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus knew he was going to the cross. So why did Jesus have to die? 
This is the gospel message, that Jesus took our punishment for sin on the cross, while he himself had never sinned nor ever became a sinner, but remained perfect Savior through the whole ordeal, proving what would happen next. Unlike all others who were crucified, Jesus was innocent, he was without sin, and he was the only one that could pay the price for us. And by the way, just in case you haven't heard this before, yeah, I need to be reminded. You know that when Jesus died on the cross, some pretty radical stuff happened. You know the whole world went dark for three hours? That's enough to get my attention. Then the whole earth shook. Then the veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the veil was torn. Now, if that's not enough, this is the most radical part to me. It's all radical. But dead people got up out of the ground and went into the city and told people about the Lord. Now, that would do it. Amen? If the, if the earth shaking didn't get you, if it going dark, if great-grandma shows up at your house who died 45 years ago and says, oh, by the way, Jesus, right? Oh, that'd be it. Everybody gets saved, right? All of those things happen proving that he's God, and yet people still rejected him. I'm blown away that people would continue to reject him in spite of all the evidence. Then it says in verse 4, and he was buried. Now, he was placed in a tomb, he was wrapped, he was embalmed, he was dead. Now, every other biography ends there, right? You die, that's the end of the story. And he died, that's it. Abraham died, was no more. Moses died, was no more. That's it. Story's over. This is a unique story, amen? Because Jesus is unique, because Jesus is God. The story doesn't end at the tomb, and praise God. All of the religious leaders, you've heard me say this, you've been coming more than once, but I'm going to say it again. Buddha is dead. Amen? Joseph Smith is dead. Charles Taze Russell's dead. Mary Baker Eddy's dead. You know, give me any religious leader you want, they're all dead. Muhammad is dead. They're all in the ground, we can dig up their bones. But Jesus Christ is a risen and living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. Amen? That's why he's unique. That's why he alone is God. There are no other gods before him or besides him. He's triumphed over sin and death and the grave. He says he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. Again, he didn't die a martyr, but he is a risen and living Savior. And it says he is risen according to what? The Scriptures. This is why we read the book and don't wait for the movie, right? Amen? Read the Bible. It's amazing if we spend time in God's Word, how clear we understand the truth. People walk around, I don't know the meaning of life. My life's a mess, man. I don't know what's going on. Read the Bible? No. And I even love the guys who are authority on the Bible who've never read it. I love guys who tell me, oh, books filled with contradictions. Really? Name one. Well, I haven't really read it. So you're an authority on something you never read? Well, yeah, kind of. All right. How ignorant is that, right? But see, again, people want to be on the throne of their own life so much that rather than just understand the truth and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and have peace and joy and the promise of heaven, they would rather sit on the throne and be arrogant. It just breaks my heart. And it breaks God's heart even more than that. In Psalm 16, he says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, or the abode of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. Jesus proclaimed numerous times that he would raise from the dead. Now this is, again, if the apostles had been paying attention, instead of whining and hiding, they'd have been sitting at the tomb on the third day with a good seat. Right? They'd have been down there with beach chairs, little bonfires, some marshmallows or something, right? I'm sitting, oh, I'm, I'm in the front, man, dude. I'm right here, you know? The ultimate tailgate party. I'm waiting for the resurrection. I'm sitting right here, man. I'm watching. This is going to be sweet, right? Well, here's what he told them. In Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and, many, and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. So he told them. Matthew 17, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised up. Did they just go deaf at the end of every sentence? I don't understand. Matthew 20, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed into the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Do you know what the emphasis was of the early church when they shared the gospel? You know what the first words out of their mouths were? He is risen. 
He's risen just as he said. He's alive. He's a risen and living Savior. We don't serve a dead God. Amen? And praise the Lord for that. Lastly, let's look at the evidences of his conviction. It's interesting that Jewish and Roman law both, you had to have two witnesses to confirm that something was true. One witness couldn't come into court. It never worked. You had to have at least two. Well, the Lord had hundreds. And let's take a look here. It says, And he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. Who's Cephas? Peter. In Luke 24, it says, The Lord is risen and has appeared to, see, to Peter. Now, I love this because this points to God's grace. Is this microphone just going wacky or what? I feel like I'm... Oh, all right. There it is. Now, Peter... The last time we saw Peter prior to Jesus coming and speaking to him, what did he do? He, what did he do? He denied the Lord. Do you remember that scene? Can you imagine? I can't imagine anything, any worse situation in the world. The Lord told him, you guys are all going to deny me. And Peter said, not I, Lord, I'll die for you. And the Lord said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, no way. And notice that Peter fell in his area of his greatest strength. Be careful, guys. Be careful, gals, right? There we think we're strongest, be careful. And Peter went out and we know that he cursed God and denied God. And the last time, a little girl came up and said, you're one of them. And he cursed, he cursed and said, I don't know him. And do you know, as soon as he cursed, they were bringing Jesus out. And he looked up and his eyes met the eyes of the Lord. Can you imagine being Peter at that moment? He curses, he says he doesn't know him. He looks across the courtyard and he sees him face to face. And what does Peter do? He goes away and he weeps bitterly. When Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to the women at the tomb, what did he tell them? Go tell my disciples, and especially Peter, that I have risen. That's a sign of God's grace, amen? He knew that Peter was weeping. He knew that Peter was broken. He knew that Peter thought he was unsavable at that point. And the Lord wanted him to know, Peter, I still love you. And who does he appear to first? Peter, of the apostles. I love that. You know what? If you're here today and you've blown it, I want you to know that he still loves you, amen? More than you will ever know. Verse, and then after appearing to Cephas, he appeared then by the twelve. So he was seen by Peter, and then he was seen by the twelve. And again, that was a reference to the apostles. We know there was not twelve of them anymore. They still call them the twelve often. But we're here, when did this happen? In Mark 16, Luke 24, John 19. They're all up in the upper room. They're all scared to death, and Jesus shows up. He just shows up. And he, he came through the doors. Doors and windows were shut. But I want to make it really clear, he was flesh and bone. Some people say, oh, he only arose in the spirit. That's not true. And he said, Feel, touch me. I'm real. He ate with them. And so he was seen by Peter. He was seen by the twelve. If that's not enough, look at verse 6. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. So he's speaking to the people in Corinth who are doubting the resurrection and says, okay, look. He rose from the dead. He was seen by Peter. He was seen by the twelve. Oh, by the way, 500 other people saw him, and they're all, most of them are still alive. Just go ask them. I love that. You want to talk about the ultimate testimony. They're still walking around. If you're doubting the resurrection, there's 500 people that have seen him. A few have died, but most of them are still here. Go ask them. Again, what clear proof of the resurrection. Not two or three witnesses, but hundreds Jesus rose from the dead. It is a, an historical fact. Look at verse 7. After that, he was seen by James and by all the apostles. James is who? The what of Jesus? His brother. Do you know that all of his brothers rejected him until after the crucifixion? They, they literally mocked the Lord and they rejected him. Can you imagine growing up in the house with Jesus? You'd think you'd be repenting, but I could also see where some people might be bitter. Why don't you just be more like your brother? James probably called him Mr. Goody Two Sandals or something, right? I mean, you're always perfect. You never do anything wrong. You, you're never going to measure up. Now, they should have been repenting, but instead they grew bitter. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his brother. And man, I love that. His brother who had mocked him, his brother who didn't believe him, his brother who had denied him. And Jesus appears to him and loves on him. And James, we know, then became a mighty man of God. He became a pastor and he... The book of James in your Bible was written by James, the brother of Jesus, who didn't get saved until after the resurrection. Again, proof again of God's grace and his love. 
He appeared again to all the apostles. He ate with them. He comforted them. He commanded them to preach the gospel. He told them to wait into Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Spirit. Jesus at this meeting also breathed the Holy Spirit into them. I love that. Now, by the way, the ultimate proof, one of the ultimate proofs to me too, some people have these theories. We're going to close, but some people have these theories that Jesus didn't really die or that they stole the body. Okay? Well, first of all, you don't appear to 500 people if your body was stolen and you're dead. That doesn't work. And if they beat you and they crucify you and they run a spear through your chest and they wrap you up in linen and put you into a tomb for 36 hours with no air, how do you think you would handle that? You're dead. They buried him. He was dead. And to prove that the body was not stolen, do you know that all the apostles who doubted him, who were hiding because they were afraid, all of them ended up being martyred for their faith. What does that tell you? That tells you they believed it unto the death because they knew it was true. It's the most provable fact. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. May we never water it down. May we never say it's not important. I hear pastors say that. Well, it's not important. What? Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. Amen? Without the resurrection, we could be following any of these other false gods who are dead and in the ground. We serve a risen and living Savior. And then verse 8, And last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due season. Paul saw him on the road to Damascus. So the cumulative testimony of these witnesses is overwhelming. Not only did they see Jesus after his death, but they saw him in a way, again, that revolutionized their hearts, that changed their character, that got them to the place where they were willing to die. The gospel. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again on the third day. He is a risen and living Savior who has triumphed over sin and death. Now, here's the question for you this morning. While we have not seen Him with our eyes, we have His completed Word in our hands. The Bible tells us that He is the fulfillment of over 200 Old Testament prophecies. We've seen the testimony of the radically transformed lives of the people all around us. Prophetically, it points to Jesus. Historically, archaeologically, every kind of evidence you could ever want proves that Jesus Christ again is God. But the Bible tells us today that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. While we have not seen Jesus with our eyes, we can see Him in the Word. We can see Him in history. We can see Him in prophecy. But now we must make a decision about Jesus Christ. You must make a decision about Him. The greatest act of love in the history of all mankind is that Almighty God left heaven and came to earth and lived a sinless, perfect life that took all of your sin upon Himself and suffered and died in your place that you might have eternal life and then proved Himself to be God and that on the third day He rose from the dead, triumphing over sin and death, again proving Himself to be God. What have you done with Jesus? What have you done with Him? It's not enough to know that He exists. It's not enough to know that He's around. It's not enough to believe that He is God. You must have a relationship with Him. What have you done with Jesus? He offers us salvation universally, but it must be accepted individually. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning, and Lord, we know that Your Word very clearly tells us that today is the day of salvation. Lord, I know in a room with this many people, there are no doubt at least a few here who do not know you, who maybe have known about you, maybe have been to church before, but have never confessed you as Lord and Savior. As your word says, Lord, if we confess you before men, you will confess us before your Father in heaven. If we deny you before men, you will deny us before your Father in heaven. Lord, we will only be able to stand on judgment day because your Son will be standing interceding on our behalf. Lord, if there's even one person here this morning that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that right now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would draw them into a place of receiving you as Lord and Savior. They would acknowledge their sin and say, yes, I want Jesus to be my Lord. Yes, I want Jesus to pay the price for my sin. No, I don't want to pay the price, Lord. I'll allow you to do it. And then I want you to come in and rule and reign in my life. I want to follow you. I want to serve you. If you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You've never asked Him to be your Lord and Savior. It's real simple. You simply ask and you receive. 
The Bible tells us, again, if you confess him before men, he'll confess you before the Father in heaven. This is your opportunity to confess him before men, to simply say, yes, I'm a sinner, and I want to know that I've been born again. The Bible says all the angels in heaven rejoice when one person comes to know Christ. You're doing this before God. But we make a public confession, again, so we can boldly say, Lord, I confess you before men. So if it's your desire to walk out of here knowing you've been born again, to allow Jesus to pay the price that he came to pay, I want you to do something real simple. Just raise your hand so I can pray a simple prayer with you. Is there anybody here at all? Don't leave here without him. You know what? Don't worry about what anybody else is doing. The Lord loves you. He brought you here. Is there anybody at all? Anybody. I know the Lord's working on some hearts right now. It's a matter, this this lasts for eternity, you guys. If you're a believer, pray for those who don't know God. Is there anybody? Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we do pray for those here who may have been struggling. Lord, you continue to work on their hearts. Continue to reveal your love to them, Lord. Lord, for those of us who do know you, may we have that same attitude as the early Christians to walk around and saying, He is risen. He's alive. You are a risen and living Savior. We thank you for your love, for your grace, for your mercy. Lord, we cannot even begin to praise you for all you've done for us, let alone what you continue to do. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.